Amen. So if you don't know what we're doing, we are, we took the gospel of Mark and we're looking at the gospel of Mark, spending some time in it, allowing it to speak to us, to correct us, to encourage us, to do everything the Bible is supposed to do. And we're in a tough little section of scripture. Last week, if you were here, Jesus talks about the seriousness of sin. He doesn't say, hey, well, boys will be boys. He says, if something's offending you, cut it off. If your arm offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, tear it out. Pretty serious, right? He is on a roll because he's going to hit another very hard subject, and it's divorce. And we need to come to Scripture and say, okay, what does the Bible have to say? Because we have a culture that's saying something. We have our own personal opinions on things. But neither of those things are necessarily correct. And as Christians, we come to the Bible and say, what does the Bible have to say on this? And then as believers, we submit to it. That's what we're supposed to do. So that's today. All right, so pretty serious subject. I probably won't give any humorous stories about me wrecking forklifts, as great as those might be. But we got to stay really focused on this because it's a complicated subject. So we're going to jump into it and stay in the Bible. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Get packing, girl. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this manner, this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What a text. Marriage, divorce, adultery. Fun, fun Sunday topics. It's not Christmas anymore, is it? So here's what's happening. Jesus is making his way down from the northern part of Israel, and he's going to make his way to Jerusalem right before the Passover, a week before. He'll enter it triumphantly. He'll be uh, put on trial, obviously betrayed, and then crucified. 
So that's where he's headed. So he's on a road trip with his disciples, enjoying probably the road trip until these Pharisees come. And they ask a question, and it's the hot subject of the day. It would be like us talking about vaccines or the mandates or filibuster or voting rights or urban campgrounds or masks on children or gender dysphoria, whatever it is, right? Hot topic. They ask it, it's a dishonest question. They don't really want the answer. They're there to test him. But the moment they ask this question, everybody would be like, what is Jesus going to say? What is he going to answer on this hot topic? And what we get here is two perspectives. So I'm going to try to get us to understand these two perspectives and put it in the culture that would have been there 2,000 years ago and then make some simple, I hope, observations for us today. So you've got the Pharisees. They come. They ask about divorce. Jesus, verse 3, says, what did Moses command you? They respond by going to the law. They go to really an excuse. Well, Moses said, give them a piece of paper and send them packing. And then Jesus immediately comes back with, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this command. The reason why that's in there, guys, Jesus would say, is because you're sinners. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's because you're sinners. And Moses has actually made it harder to divorce. Before that, you didn't have anything formal to do. If you were done with the marriage, you'd just say, get out of my house. So Moses had actually added a step formalizing it, or you have to go through some kind of a process, and then you could get divorced. So Moses had actually made it more difficult, all right? So that's kind of where we're at. So the Pharisees base their understanding of marriage and divorce off a part of the Old Testament that we call the law. Now, what's the law? The law is the part of the first five books of the Bible that when you hit it, you're like, what am I doing? I can't read this anymore. I'm going to read the Psalms. That's the law. So the law was begun with the Ten Commandments. Pretty simple. I, th- I say they're kindergarten morality. Don't steal, right? Essentially. D- don't be unfaithful. Don't lie. So kindergarten morality. But what happened over the next 40 years, excuse me, of Israel living out those Ten Commandments is there came up these situations that needed further wisdom. Or Israel just blatantly broke the original 10, and so then more guidelines were given to help them keep the original 10. So really, over 40 years, you have the 10 commandments built out into the law. They're the foundation, and then built on it are an additional 603 other commands. It gets really complicated if you read it. So when the Pharisees are looking for marriage and divorce, they go to that 603. And there are only two of those 603 that deal with marriage and divorce. We're going to look at them both. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 21. And I'm just going to read it for you. Verses 10 and 11. 
This is the first part of scripture that addresses a marriage problem, if you would. And it goes like this. If he takes another wife, we got polygamy in here, to himself, he shall not diminish her food. This is his previous wife. Her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Okay, so let me try to unpack this a little bit. You've got this is the first divorce marriage or divorce law. And here's what's happening. God had freed his people from Israel or from Egypt, right? 400 years they've been in Egypt. God had set them free. He brings them out. But when they came out, if you spent 400 years in a culture, you'd pick up some stuff from that culture. In Egyptian culture was not the way God wanted culture to be. So Israel came out of Egypt, but it would take a bunch of years for God to get Egypt out of Israel. So part of what happens is there's this kind of these situations that pop up where Egypt is popping up out of Israel a little bit. It's kind of like this, like if you have kids, parents, you know your children are little angels. The problem is Johnny down the road, he's a little devil, right? And you got to be careful because he's going to make a sinner out of your son. No, that's not true. All your kids, all kids are sinners. Johnny just gives them new techniques to sin. That's all there is. So while they were in Egypt, Israel picked up a bunch of new techniques to sin. And so God now is trying to help them learn what it means to be a community underneath Yahweh so that they can be a light to the nations demonstrating, here's what it looks like if you follow me. Here's the brilliance of life. So out of this comes a situation. Someone's taking a second wife, okay? So you gotta deal with that. What do we do? It still happens today. I have a friend who is a missionary in a region where people can take five wives. And these people, they'll end up getting saved and they'll come in. You know, this massive caravan will come in, kids and wives and a husband. And then they start reading the Bible. They start finding about God's design. And they're like, oh my goodness, I want to be an elder. And it says elders, 1 Timothy chapter 3, have to be the man of one wife. What do I do? Do I send away four of my wives and their children out? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Because that would be really bad for that woman. Most likely she'd have one profession and one profession only that she could do. So that's not going to work. So you got to work like in the middle ground. What do you do in this situation? Well, no, you don't send them away, but you raise your children up with an understanding that says this wasn't the best. And as a dad, I would never do this again. Son, I don't want you doing this. And so you got to deal with, all right, it's not so easy. So that's what this command is doing. It's that right there. Like, what do we do in this situation? So you got to take wisdom from it now. Okay. We understand the situation, trying to get Egypt out of Israel, that they brought in some stuff that wasn't God's design, but you got to deal with it right then and there. What do, you, what do you do? So here's what you find, the wisdom from this. In this little text, Exodus 21, what gender gets the short end of the stick when it comes to polygamy? Throughout human history, it's women, right? Men would begin to collect women like property. And it happened in Genesis chapter four. A guy named Lamech begins to take on multiple wives. 
and he's a really bad dude. And it began to become harems, and I'm going to take on as many women as I can control, like to just show off. So women became property, and that's really what has happened throughout human history. So, so in this little text right here, you read it, who is God protecting? The woman, right? That you can't just go get a new woman and say to your old woman, well, I'm not going to feed you, and I'm not going to clothe you, and I'm not going to give you marital rights anymore. What are marital rights? Sex, thank you. Someone was brave enough to say it. That's exactly what it is. So God here is saying, no, no. I know that happened in Egypt. It's not happening here. You're not going to do that. You're going to cast them away and not be caring for them. And if you do, if someone didn't, if a man no longer provided food, clothing, sex, who broke the marriage then? The man did because he failed to take care of that wife. And if she wants to leave, the Bible says she is free to leave then because the dude broke the marriage and she can go. So here, what you see is God saying, I'm going to protect women from men's proclivity that I've seen since Genesis chapter four. It's God protecting women. So that's the first one. Second text on divorce is Deuteronomy 24. Verse one, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. What in the world is this one? Okay. Again, these are situations that are being addressed. And I'm pretty sure the last part of this is God's way of saying, and I'll put it real simply, no wife swapping. Because there are countries that you can go to right now that are highly religious. And in this highly religious society, they have a law that says Thursday night, you can divorce your wife. And you can marry this other woman for 24 hours. And then Friday, that marriage that you had for 24 hours disappears and you remarry your previous wife. We would call that wife swapping today, okay? So this is, and you can read a lot of commentaries on this. This is God saying, there's no wife swapping in my society. So we might think, hey, you know, wife swapping is this new thing that's crazy. No, it's been around for a long, long time. It's God saying a long time ago, that doesn't happen. That is an abomination. Don't be trying those things here. Okay, but that's a total side point. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Two things that you gotta glean from this little text. Number one, the law, the hard, rigid law of the Old Testament. 613 do's and don'ts. The law assumes if you get divorced, 
you're going to get remarried. Did it not? Right? That's what it just, if she leaves, you give her a certificate of divorce and she gets remarried. So the law, the Old Testament, when you look at marriage and divorce, it assumes that if there's divorce, the man, the woman will go out and they will get remarried. This is the law, the hard, unbearable burden. Acts chapter 15 says, mm, no, there'll be remarriage. So always keep that in your head. Number two, it's this word indecency. It's a difficult word in the Hebrew to translate because it's used one time right there. Normally, we figure out the semantic range of a word by how it's used in different contexts. So you can kind of say, oh, this is what the word means. This word happens one time in the Bible and that's it. So there's no way to be like, well, what does it mean? We're not really sure. Nobody's sure. The root of it does mean nakedness. Okay, so here's what had happened in Jesus's time because of that one word, indecency. There were two very influential rabbis that taught on this text. The first guy, his name is Shimei. He said the word indecency refers to a sexual relationship outside of the marriage. That's all that you can have. That's the only indecent thing that can lead to divorce. That's the only time that you can write a certificate of divorce is if the husband, if the wife has been unfaithful sexually in the marriage, then divorce is allowed. So that's his take. But there was a second very influential rabbi. His name is Hillel. Hillel said this, indecency means anything that a man does not like. So you can go to the Mishnah, and it has this list of allowed indecencies. If your wife made you angry by burning your toast in the morning, give her a certificate of divorce. Get out of here. If she is no longer favorable in your eyes, send her away, right? I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Now, let me ask you, in a male-dominated society, which position would become more popular? Yeah, you guessed it, right? So now you have a generation or two, the disciples as well, that have grown up with an understanding of marriage that is, hey, if the woman isn't exactly like you like, doesn't cook like you like, doesn't look like you like, doesn't, doesn't treat you like a god like you deserve, then you just send her packing. You discard her. Now, Hillel's position, what is it ignoring? Exodus 21, is it not? That, wait, husband, you have requirements put on you. God put requirements on you. Take care of her. Meet her needs. Back then, the needs were food, clothing, and sexual relationship. Like, if you don't do those things, you're at fault. So they were cherry-picking scripture at this point. They were ignoring one, preferring a certain interpretation of the second one because it made it easier for them. They were not balanced. So who was getting hurt at this point in history? Women were. Women were just being treated like a property treated like somebody you could just send away because of one simple little mistake, right? Okay, so that's the Pharisee's position. 
What does Jesus say? Well, his answer is verses six through nine. This is what Jesus says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, because of this, because of this creative thing that God did, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When Jesus thinks about marriage, where does he go? Page one. He doesn't go to the law, book of Exodus, book of Deuteronomy. He goes page one, Genesis chapter one. And he's gonna say two things that I think if you're ever gonna understand what marriage is, you gotta get both these. He's gonna say, number one, what humans are, and number two, what marriage is. And they go hand in hand with each other, right? So number one, he says this, don't forget when you get married what a human is. And he goes to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It's when you and I are created that God, after he creates everything, says, let us make man in our image, and God made them male and female. Fascinating. Fascinating to me. So number one, if you're going to get married, you better know who you are. That you are an image bearer of God. It's why the law, the very first command is, don't make any images of me. Because God would say, I already made one and it's you. Don't make another one. You are my image bearer. So when you look at Genesis chapter one, here's what you gotta tease out from that. How many species of human are there? One, mankind. How many kinds inside, how many underneath that are there? Two, what are they? Male, female, right? So you got this unity, mankind, with complexity, male and female. And it takes both male and female to image bear God right. So let me try to put this together if you've never seen this before. So God, how many creator gods are there in the Bible? One, over and over God says, listen, I created everything. There's other powers out there, I get that, no doubt, but I am the creator God. Without me, there's nothing, right? So there is one creator God. But inside of God, is there some kind of complexity, plurality? Yeah, because when God makes us, what does he say? Does he say, let me make man in my image? Mm -mm. He says, let us make man in our image. So there's unity. There's one creator, God. But we know there's a complexity inside that unity. We call it the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But they dwell in unity. And inside their unity, this, this unity with complexity, out of it, overpours and out of it comes creation. We're going to make something. We're going to make image bearers of ourselves. Okay? So that's God. That's what you and I are to image bear. So the marriage is just like that. Right? There's unity with complexity. It's the two shall become one flesh. And when they become one flesh, out of that unity comes more creation, more image bearers, right? I hope we're not learning anything right there. Please, right? 
that humans are really good at creating more humans, are we not? There's seven billion of us. And part of that is this incredible way that we image bear back to God, that in his unity, yes, there's complexity and plurality, and out of that gushes more creation, more image bearing. And you and I, when we get married and we image bear God right, in the oneness comes more creation, more image bearers, and it keeps echoing out and echoing out. So what Jesus is saying is this, marriage is not like you think it is. Marriage is something much, much different. It's humans in this beautiful way, image bearing back to God. And he says, when you get married, the two become one. There's this two-ness that becomes oneness and becomes unified. And out of this unity comes more beauty and more creativity and more stuff. So you got to know, you got to know both what you are as a human and what marriage is, that we are different. We're not like goats, praise God that we somehow image bear God, that the whole person bonding that happens in a Genesis 2 kind of marriage, two souls poured into each other, becoming one in this amazing way, that's the only way that you are able to image bear God right. Just the man can't do it and just the woman can't do it. It's only in that unity that we're able to do it again. And because of that, because we're image bearing God, that means I want to take care of my spouse. I want to give her food and I want to give her clothing, and I want to give her her marital rights, right? All that comes in that because I'm image-bearing God who is the ultimate giver, who gives and gives and gives. So Jesus here says, ha, 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 marriage is not about the law. It's not about these legal little wranglings. It's not about these excuses. No way. Now that's, that happened because of sin, because of hardness of heart, right? You've got marriage wrong is what Jesus is saying. And here's how the Pharisees got the marriage wrong. They thought marriage, they thought marriage was about them being happy. And if my wife doesn't make me happy, Deuteronomy 24, I find some indecency in her. I don't like her cooking. I don't like the way she dresses. I don't like the way she looks. Then because I'm not happy, I just kick her to the curb. Jesus says, no, you skipped the beginning. You skipped the beginning. Isn't that us today with marriage? Isn't so much of what people's problems in a relationship is, well, I'm just not happy anymore. He doesn't make me happy. Well, fire him for goodness sake. She doesn't make me happy. Well, get pack sand, woman, right? That's where we're exactly where the Pharisees were 2,000 years ago, right? This is where we're at. This is what we do. And the problem is this, guess what? Marriage isn't easy. Do you know that? I have a joke. The only people that believe marriage is easy are engaged people. That's it, <laughs> right? And I used to love marriage counseling because they'd come in and be like, I'd try to explain to them, hey, you're a sinner getting married to a sinner, so there's gonna be sin and get, no, no, not us. Oh, Matt, you don't know us. We love Jesus, so our marriage is gonna be easy. Oh, okay. All right, well, do you wanna make an appointment now for six months after you get married? Because it's not gonna be. And my favorite was this dude, I met with him afterwards, and he's like, dude, I don't know what happened. You were right, man. The moment I put that ring on, she became her mom. What do I do? Like, okay, now we can talk. Right? So Jesus is saying, you got it wrong. And I would say this today. We have it harder than we've ever had it in history to stay married. 
And there's two reasons, selfishness and the sexualization of our nature. Like now, it, the, I mean, the, the images that people are bombarded with to try to find an indecency in their own spouse, it's nonstop. Do you know that? Like it just infiltrates every level. It's actually beginning to start in children to get them to think in a certain way. And I know I get emails from people that tell me, Matt, you're just overreacting. No way. Come on. Okay. So about five years ago, I found these pictures and it compared just 15 years before really the internet and pornography's explosion through the internet. It compared kids' toys from 2000 to 2015 to show you how what our little kids are looking at now is no longer cute. It's sexual. So look at these. This is My Little Pony. So can you guess which one was 15 years ago? Right, how cute is that, right? Cute little girls and fluffy little hats. Okay, look at 2015. She's in a miniskirt. Tiny little waists, right? They're very sexualized. And that's happening to our kids. It's happening on every level. So check this one out. This one's my favorite. Clue, right? The boringest game in the world. Classic detective game. You got the lady, you can't even see her neck. She's got like frilly things up to her neck, right? What happens in the next one? Ooh, discover the secrets. Ooh, the secrets of what? This pretty woman, that's probably what they're saying. Still stupid game, but man, that cover is exciting. I'll buy it just for the cover. Okay, and this one right here. Queen Frostine. Oh, that's great, cute. What does she look like? The new one, right? Looks like the Kardashians from Instagram. I'm serious, right? What happened? What adults are seeing all the time is now infiltrating down into the way that everything is being presented to our society. So I say there's no one that has ever had it more difficult to stay married than 21st century America because we are a very selfish society and then we're just hypersexualized every level now. Kids' toys, everything is, okay? So here's the mistake. They believed, Pharisees did, they interpreted Deuteronomy 24, they believed it's about my happiness. They didn't go to Genesis 1 and 2, they went to, I gotta be happy. They didn't go actually, I'm committing to my spouse, my wife, my husband. Whole person bonding, whole life, because I am image-bearing God in this, that marriage is his idea, he designed it, and I'm actually doing something by being married. I'm just a little part in this. But man, if I carry out my marriage beautifully in an incredible way, I image-bear God right, and it's good. Not about my happiness. It's not when she gets displeasing to my eye, I trade her in for a new model. No, I commit to her for my entire life because that's what God has done for me. So Jesus explains this, right? If you read Matthew's account of this, it's Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples hear this. They've been believing Hillel for their whole life that, man, you just do whatever you want. And so they say this, who should get married then, Jesus? Right? I'm staying single, bro. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. 
He doesn't say, oh, oh, time out. But then they lived happily ever after. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Some people stay single their whole life because of this. So Jesus is really super honest about it. He doesn't disagree. He doesn't say, happily ever after. No way. Marriages, you got to stick this thing out. Don't divide what God has joined together, that this is bigger than you, right? So let me just try to make some points on this. So the law never prohibited remarried marriage, right? It just didn't. Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24. But right after Jesus says all this, he adds this very cryptic statement that people have pondered over for years. Listen to this. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, what in the world does that mean? There are all kinds of ideas on this. One of them is that back 2,000 years ago, if a man did hand a certificate of divorce to his wife and sent her out of his house, very often that woman will be forced into one occupation, prostitution. It would cause her to be committing adultery. Now, I don't think that's what it's saying. Here's what I believe. If you read Matthew's account of this, Jesus adds in one little phrase. Mark always simplifies it and condenses. Jesus adds in one little phrase. He says, unless there's sexual immorality, you cause them to commit adultery. So I think if you read the Bible, here's what adultery means. Adultery is a broken marriage. That's what adultery is. You read adultery in the Old Testament. And God would say, if the nation broke covenant with him, he would say that the nation, Jeremiah chapter five, nine, the nation has committed adultery on me. They've broken the commitment. They've broken the covenant. So if a marriage is broken because of sexual immorality, it's already broken. It doesn't mean it can't be redeemed. It doesn't mean it can't be fixed. But what God wanted, the two becoming one, Something else has gotten between that and it's already broken. It's already busted. Now, if there's a divorce because that didn't involve sexual immorality, the moment that person gets remarried, then the sole bond that happens in marriage that I can't explain, that connection to somebody that is deeper and more mysterious than anything else, when there's sexual the marital rights that happen in the next marriage, that soul bond is then broken. That's what I believe is being talked about right here. There is. It's happening right then. You finally make the break when you have sex in your next marriage. And that's when the marriage bond that God wants, when it's broken. That soul thing. The Old Testament uses this word dode. It's the intermingling of souls. That, that's what God wants. You become one spiritually, physically, mentally. You can repeat each other's sentences. You know how each other think. That incredible, rich, brilliant thing is broken in the next marriage. So the church 
When we look at what God says about marriage, when you look at what Jesus says about marriage, Genesis 1 and 2, when you look at how it's supposed to image bear back up to God, the two becoming one, unity with complexity, creating more, image bearing back to God, his generosity, his giving, Exodus 21 stuff that we give those things. The church is very against divorce. I am personally very against divorce, that I counsel and I talk and I fight and say, come on, this is bigger than you. Think about the kids. The next section is look out for kids. I don't think it's a coincidence because divorce hurts kids. So stop being selfish, be generous, stop it. Give the stuff you're supposed to, come on. That's what I fight for. And I counsel that way. But people that I have fought with and counseled with they have ended up divorced. And I'm very competitive. I'm like, ah, oh, but the reason why we do that is because Jesus says, God has joined you together in a way and divorce separates you. That there is in divorce an amputation of your very soul, your spirit. And if you've been divorced, you know that. There are what I call phantom feelings, right? They never go away because you were joined with them. The kids who gets them for holidays, who gets them period, right? They become a battleground for two people that are fighting each other through a war waged in their children and they get hurt from it. It's why we fight and we don't believe that it should ever happen, but it does happen. People that love Jesus end up getting divorced and it's hard, it's hard. Then why would God make it so hard? Why, was God, why does he have these things? Here's why. Here's why commitment to me is the king when it comes to marriage. Not happiness. It's commitment. Commitment is the king. It's not about me being happy in my marriage. It's more about me being holy. Okay? And here's what I know. When I was single, I was awesome. I'm serious. I was kind. I was generous. I was a catch. And then I got married and live with a bunch of sinners in my house. And it revealed how much of a sinner I actually am. That doesn't happen when you're single at home, right? It revealed to me the short fuse I have when I see a box of Briar's natural vanilla in the refrigerator, in the freezer, and I think to myself, I'm gonna wait until all the kids go to sleep so I can eat it all for myself. And I sneak down there after everyone's asleep and I go to grab that Briar natural vanilla container, and it's empty. No, it's not empty. There's a spoon inside of it. And I'm like, you little heathens. That doesn't happen when you're single. So God says, this is the soil, Matt, that I can actually heal you from your own wretchedness and your own brokenness. And it's only in commitment that it works. So a couple of years ago, it was actually six, Charlie and I were celebrating our 16th wedding anniversary and we went out to eat. And to this day, I don't know why I answered this lady this way, but I did. And she came over and she was our waitress and she found out that we were celebrating 16 years and she's like, oh wow, that's fantastic. How have you made it so long? What's your secret? And for some reason, I looked at her and I said, because I promised. I promise no matter what, hell or high water, we're staying married. And she just said, oh, let me get your appetizer. <laughs> I 
I think she expected jello, like, oh, because we love each other, because we talk, because we share everything, even our toothbrushes, that's our secret. No, because I promised. Here's why that's so important. That's the only soil in which marriage is safe. My wife knows she can tell me anything and she won't scare me off because I promised. I know I can tell my wife anything because she's committed and I won't scare her off. It's the only ground that you can be naked and unashamed. The only ground when you say our goal is sanctification, our goal is holiness, and we are committed to the future of each other. You know that original vow in the, in, that people use for better, for worse? It's all future. It's not I'm committed to her right now the way she is, or I'm committed to him right now. I'm committed to the future of him. Even if it's bad, I'm committed to him. That's why I love that vow. That's a biblical vow. I'm committed committed to her future. I'm committed to his future. Come hell or high water, you will not scare me off. You can tell me whatever you need to tell me. Man, that's growth. And when your goal is that, when your goal is holiness and sanctification, the fruit of that is always happiness. You try for happiness, you'll miss it. If your goal is holiness and sanctification and naked, unashamed oneness with your spouse, you will end up with happiness. Man, I'm the happiest man on earth. Can't imagine a better life, right? Okay, so I know right now that there are people in here that have got divorced. And you're asking, well, what does that mean for me? It means, number one, Jesus would say there was sin right? The reason why Jesus gives for a certificate of divorce is the hardness of heart. And that sin could have been your sin personally, or it could have been you were sinned against. And I know this, an amputation happened to you. I needed to be healed. In the Bible, grace never, never ignores sin, but grace also always heals sin. The Bible says, Romans 8, verse 20, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And if we don't allow grace to heal us in a divorce, what happens is we become very hard, unforgiving people, and we roll in our heads over and over and over what she did, what he did, what she did, what he did, and it just drives us insane. And you gotta be healed from that or else it will pollute you. I know that there are people sitting in here that are considering divorce right now. My advice to you is fight. My advice to you is it's not about you. Marriage is so much bigger than you. You are joining in something, a design thing, how you are designed to properly image bear God, his faithfulness, his goodness, his giving, his stick it to itness. Fight. There is power in the redemptive glory of the gospel. I have watched marriage that I should have given up on be healed by Jesus Christ and become stronger than anything imaginable. Fight. There are young people that just have gotten married in here. And it's bliss, and I'm happy for you. Get involved and thrive. 
get some more tools. Know that, guess what? There are obligations, Exodus 21. You get married, there's obligations to you. Right? Food, clothing, sex. That was the big three back then. I don't know what the big three is today for you, but there are obligations. You entered into obligations. Make sure you're fulfilling them. Pray. Read 1 Corinthians 7. It talks about the same kind of obligations. Make sure you're carrying your side of the bargain because nothing kills a marriage faster than selfishness. And generosity is the glue that sticks it together. Give more than you could possibly imagine to your spouse and it will repay you good measure, pressed down, running over. I guarantee that. Be so generous with your spouse. Give him, give her more forgiveness, more leeway, more of anything, more of what you want. Give that all to your spouse and you will never be disappointed how it repays you because selfishness always kills marriages. And we're going to have prayer after this. I think some people just need prayer today. That marriage is not easy. Right? The disciples respond like, oh, this is impossible. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And you need me. You need more of Jesus. Be prayed for. And we're going to go to the table. We're going to take communion. And maybe for some of us, we're kind of past this and there's still a root of bitterness in us and there's unforgiveness in us and there's this tape that we play over and over about how she did this and how he did this and it's polluting us today. Be set free from that. Be healed from that amputation. Don't let it pollute your present anymore. Take it to the altar and leave it there today. So you have an opportunity. Maybe your marriage is not what you thought it would be. Okay. Bring that to Jesus. Maybe your marriage is brilliant and amazing. Be thankful for that. It's a gift from him. And so Jesus today, we've heard your hard words, and they are. But you say them because you love us. And you know the design that's inside of us. And we lose sight of that because culture clouds our conscience and clouds what is clear in Scripture. I pray for the marriages in here. I pray that they would image you well. That you are good and you are generous. I pray that husbands would be good and generous to their wives. I pray that wives would be good and generous to their husbands. I pray for marriages that feel so fragile today. I pray that where we're weak, you would be strong, that you would heal and that you would move. I pray for young people considering marriage. I pray that they'd put away the fanciful lies of our culture and they would get back to what you say marriage is. It's the image bearer, our covenanting God. May we eat of your strength today. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup.
cup of cleansing, the cup of forgiveness, the cup of healing, that by your stripes we're healed. I pray for people in here that have gotten divorced. They've gone through that amputation and they can feel the phantom feelings and they can feel crushed like a leper, like an outcast. I pray that your blood would heal them today. That your grace would overwhelm them today. If there's unforgiveness or bitterness beginning to take a root in their heart, that today you would cleanse them from that. I pray for marriages, Lord, where there are wounds and there's baggage that we want to bring into every new conversation. We end up beating each other up. I pray that today we'd be a group of people that forget those things that lay behind and that we reach forward to the high mark that you have on us for our marriages to image bear you. The God who forgives and the God who forgets. Let's drink of his healing, cleansing flow. Amen. So prayer up front. If you need prayer, get it. Baptism's right out here. Would you stand for one final song?